Primary Care Knowledge Boost, Physiotherapists in Primary Care. Hello and welcome back to Primary Care Knowledge Boost. This is the next in our chats with um, some of the wider members of the primary care team. Yeah, and today we're speaking to physiotherapists Judith Dawson and Joanne Roberts. They're both senior um, physiotherapists and they've got leadership roles. They tell us about their careers to date and fill us in on how physiotherapists are integrating into the primary care team more and more. It was another absolutely fabulous chat and we hope you enjoy. Would you like to first of all introduce yourself and then give us a bit of a background about, about what you do? Okay, uh, so my name is Joanne Roberts. I'm uh, currently a clinical lead physio over at Trafford and Altrincham and seconded to uh, help with the implementation of the new R's roles. So I'm Judith Dawson. I'm a physiotherapist who works in primary care and also in a clinical and assessment treatment service, which is an interface service. I've been a physiotherapist for 32 years and have spent an awful lot of time working with musculoskeletal problems and have a real interest in working in primary care and being at the beginning of a patient's journey rather than at the end, which is often where physiotherapists end up. So that kind of diagnostic initial assessment side of things Mm. is where your interests lie. Yes, definitely. Lovely. And then um, can you talk to us about how you became a physiotherapist, the decision and the training and things like that? Yeah. So I I, uh, became really interested in physiotherapy around about the age of 13. Um, I was quite a sporty younger person and had a lot of ankle injuries and various aches and pains and things but never had actually had any physiotherapy. And then around about the same time, my mum had um, some surgery and after that developed quite a significant back problem and she ended up going off to see a physiotherapist. And she just came back with a comment of, that looks like a really nice job, might might be something that you'd enjoy. And it just sparked a bit of an interest. So that's how I ended up um, sort of doing the right A-levels and applying for physiotherapy. And at the time that I was training, you had to actually had to apply to individual physiotherapy schools, um, and it was uh-huh. it wasn't through UCAS, and you had to be quite proper. You had to have your hair a certain length and nice nails, and basically yeah. you went off for an individual interview at each uh, physiotherapy school until somebody would take you on board. So I ended up training at Salford. Um, at the time, it wasn't a degree course; it was a graduate diploma. But that's never held me back with anything academically at all. I've still been able to access master's courses and things like that. And so that's my, that was my route into physiotherapy training. Yeah, it's very much a passion from an early age and then, and then sort of seeking it out. Yes, definitely. Yeah. And I've, and I've never looked back. I've never thought I wish I'd done something else. I, I've just maybe diverted my interests in physiotherapy along the way. And I still think that that's the case now. Brilliant. Yeah. How did I get into physio? That's an interesting question. I didn't want to be a physio initially. Ah, so different to Judith. Yeah, Yeah. completely different. (laughs) Judith and I have had this discussion of how different it is. I always wanted to be a nurse, but I got uh, nine O-levels and initially then they didn't do the degree. So you had to do six O-levels to go as part of the pre-nursing course, uh, which meant that I would have had 15 O-levels. So the ladies on the course said don't do this go away and do your A-levels so I did I went and did chemistry biology psychology A-level and then I ended up doing a chemistry and biology degree (laughs) so and then randomly as I I was finishing because they offered me a PhD in chemistry but far too boring for me Uh, (laughs) I need to do something a bit more active and I randomly woke up one day and thought I think I'll do a physio and applied and that was it here we are today 
That's so interesting. Yeah, it's nice to have that juxtaposition between you, actually. <laughs> yeah. And how does how did your route then compare to what physiotherapists would have to go through now in terms of training? They would still go through traditionally choosing A-level in these sort of science subjects, and then they would go through the UCAS process to um, do an undergraduate degree. And what about you, Judith, then? So from whenever you train to kind of where you're at now, what's your career been like? What does it look like now? Um, Well, my first job was a rotational physiotherapist where I spent a lot of time working in medicine. So I spent a lot of time working with respiratory problems and had quite an interest in neuro as well, particularly like treating stroke, but felt that I wasn't getting a broader experience of acute conditions. So I moved and stayed within that rotational uh, post to a different trust where they had broader experience and different specialities um, and stayed rotational, but becoming more senior and taking on more autonomy and sort of seniority in managing other, other physiotherapists for probably about four to five years. And then I started to recognize that my skills were very much more towards MSK and musculoskeletal practice generally. And an opportunity came up in the very early 90s where some GPs became fund holders Mm -hmm. and they wanted physiotherapy in-house. Now, it's very different from a first contact job, but I was working in GP practices in the early 90s offering in-house physiotherapy, which is not the same as a first contact practice job, but gave me a very early exposure to working within a different team in a primary care setting. So helping sort of the receptionist know where to refer patients to, working with GPs, going knocking on doors and saying somebody's come in with a sore knee, but actually they've told me today they're having problems with bladder control and, and being able to quickly have conversations. And I also had the experience of GPs coming knocking on my door saying, somebody's come in and they've got a groin problem and I don't really know what it is. Can you come and have a look? And so that collaborative working started in that. And that went on for quite a few years until fund holding was deemed to be not good value for money. And it then just filtered out again. So at that point, we started in the late 90s looking at waiting times in orthopaedics. And I then became what was known as an orthopaedic physiotherapy practitioner, working on a tier two project to reduce waiting times in orthopaedics. Amazing. What a journey. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that, that, yeah, that gave me um, a different scope of practice. So I wasn't working as a physiotherapist at that point. I was starting to take on diagnostic skills. So I went on lots of master's level courses. I learned how to do um, request imaging, interpret imaging. I did an injection diploma so that I could inject patients. So we were looking at the waiting list and thinking that is not a patient that's going to need orthopedic surgery we can manage those patients in physiotherapy world uh, and reducing the waiting list. And I was working at a time when the waiting list were in excess of three years and we got waiting list down to nine months in 12 months. Um, And there was just a small team of us doing that work. And that then developed into what then became Interface Service, which is where I've been working for the last 20 years and then started to specialise off into primary care. So stopping patients coming into the secondary care environment and catching them at the front door. Brilliant. Yeah. It's it's amazing to see that so you've kind of lived through all of those changes and very much been part of them. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then uh Joanne, what what's your work look like at the minute? What's what's a normal week for you? Uh it's quite mixed at the minute. So on a Monday and a Friday I do the Health Education England's comments. On a Tuesday morning I do orthopedic acute knee clinic. 
Uh, on Tuesday afternoon, I do clinical supervision and meetings. Uh, Wednesday morning, I'm setting up first contact practitioner implementation for Manchester Foundation Trust. And then on a Thursday morning, that's when I uh, supervise the staff and have uh, main staff meetings. On a Thursday afternoon, I do a tier two service, which is um, whereby we assess patients see if they need any investigations or just decide on the complex management plan as opposed to a physio assessment and on a Friday is my health education in London. Wow yeah and what about your week Judith what's your week like? Yeah mine's very similar it's all over the place um I start off my week, I actually have an independent practice as well. So I start off the morning on a Monday in independent practice and then I go over to my clinical assessment and treatment job where I actually mentor a trainee, MSK CATS clinician. So I'll do some supervision and then I run from that into a a new patient clinic. Um, So it's very much a clinical day. Tuesday is my ambassador day for Health Education England. So it's obviously doing things like this and chatting to Joanne about what's happening in her area. And between myself, Joanne and one of the other AHPs, we've been looking at the, the rollout of uh, first contact jobs across Greater Manchester and trying to be influencing quite a lot of different people, PCNs. Um, health education institutes, um, about delivery of courses that are suitable for people moving into primary care. Um, and influencing really what structure first contact should take across individual areas. Um, Wednesdays is a very similar day for me. And then at the end of that, I go off back to my independent practice because I still like being a physiotherapist. Um, I, I enjoy the challenges of diagnostics, but actually I still like the rehab side of it. Thursdays is my first contact day. So I spend um, that day sort of in primary care, in a primary care MSK hub. So at the moment, because of COVID, we're not going out into the actual um, GP practices. Obviously, there's been a lot of restrictions put upon us for that. So we're in a hub um, and it's a telephone triage clinic. So we don't know what patients are going to be presenting with. And we've got to remember these are being care navigated by telephone by a receptionist. So we've had anything from spinal tumours to infected knees to DVTs to simple back pain. So it's it's very varied and it's really quick. I mean, we do our appointments in 20 minutes, which is very tight for us in physiotherapy land, but it's just about manageable. It's a big learning scope working in primary care when you've had 45 minutes in a, a secondary care model. But yeah, it is doable. Um, and then Friday, I'm back in a clinical assessment and triage clinic, which is doing diagnostic workup and referring on to orthopedic surgery if necessary. I just think it's I just think it's so amazing. It really shows you how um varied and wide the physiotherapy role can really be. Um and also the leadership roles that um you guys have, have taken on as well. It is really impressive. Um now a couple of times um we've alluded to first contact practitioners um so far. Um I think it's probably worth just maybe um having a quick chat about what that actually means, particularly in the setting of primary care, because I know that I'm not really fully aware of what it might mean. Um so that could be helpful if you don't mind. You don't go into first contact practice work early in your career. You've got to have had an established rotational um, experience first and you need at least three years working in musculoskeletal so that you're working at level seven 
in your core subject. And when you move into primary care, you're very much seeing the patient at the first point of contact. And the only signposting will probably have been from a, a receptionist. So you've got to be very vigilant to the fact that somebody might present with what appears to be a musculoskeletal problem when they ring up to book an appointment. When they turn up, it could be anything. So you need to have a really quite broad experience. And that's where your, your early years come in to help. So if you've seen neurology patients, you've seen respiratory patients, you've dealt with critically unwell patients, you've got core skills there, mm. but then you can refine and hone your MSK skills so that you can give quick advice and reassurance, signpost your patient into self-management or refer on to appropriate services when needed. So it's really important to be able to screen for red flag pathologies very quickly so that you deal with the patient in a prompt way. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah. And then are there any other rules for um, for physiotherapists in primary care? Uh, pr- predominantly not at the moment. The focus has been very much around MSK. But I think going forward, there will be a move towards us being able to specialise in respiratory, frailty, possibly in long-term health conditions as well. Uh, but the very much the focus has been for, through the uh, additional roles reimbursement scheme has been for MSK. And I think as the other AHP roles come in, so the podiatrists, the OTs and um, paramedics, then we might start seeing a broadening of what physiotherapists are, are offering in primary care. To have that direct link would be amazing, actually, wouldn't it? I mean, you've got to remember, most of us will have done some of those things and will have some signposting skills already for those things. But to be a specialist in first contact, you will have really focused on MSK. Grand, that does make sense. And thinking about those junior members coming into primary care um, from physiotherapy backgrounds, what do you think some kind of top tips for them? Any, anything for them to be aware of? I don't rush there, I'd say. Get your, get your basics right. Try and find out what you don't know. Maybe do some observational experience and then, then apply once you've done that and make sure that you've got a good supervisor when you do get there. Yeah, sort of having that the wide scope for sort of differential diagnosis and casting that out quite wide when, you, when you're the first contact that someone's having. Yeah. yeah. I was just, um, I had a quick question there, Judith, about you said um, they should have a good supervisor um, whenever they join primary care. Who can supervise physiotherapists? Well, fortunately, Health Education England have now brought out a roadmap to practice for people working in primary care. And this is um, stipulates that um, a supervisor has to be an accredited supervisor. So there is a course for people who are already working as first contact practitioners who have a master's degree or are advanced practitioners to be accredited supervisors. And then they will go on a register with the Centre for Advanced Practice so that you can identify some somebody that's in your locality that can supervise you and that person will work you through over a period of time developing a portfolio or supervising you in practice um, so that you can be accredited yourself as a first contact practitioner and we've also as AHP ambassadors been working with the health education institutes and developing some master's level modules so that there'll be an academic route to get that as well but you will still need supervision in practice. And again, you'd be using those accredited supervisors for that. Brilliant. So having both of you trained in physiotherapy and caring for patients from that perspective, uh, there must be areas that you think sometimes uh, some of the other primary care clinicians uh, 
probably don't appreciate or might not know obviously as much as as you about um so it's a great chance for some learning uh, for us is there anything we can kind of just focus on briefly today to have a a quick run through any any pearls of wisdom that you could share with us John do you want to go first (laughs) yeah okay so um I thought I would talk about arthritis management and OA knee particularly is a broad question um, because uh, obviously there's lots of clinical areas we can focus on. So um, so from a knee perspective, uh, we were saying for arthritis, it's about making sure that you're looking at holistic management and not just treat the knee symptoms. Arthritis, as we know, can affect uh, quality of life, mood, uh, ability to work. And it's about looking at the whole picture, I would say. And this is where you're primary care is essential so it stops it stops the patients becoming dependent you know if they say all right we need to x-ray you now we need to send you to secondary care to consider you know what we might inject you now but really you know you want to look at the weight management uh, activity management what their mood is like in general what what is their demands at work are they happy at work so you've got the whole biopsychosocial and biomedical model because we know arthritis is there we know that it can be managed and we know that it, it can vary on a daily basis or, uh, you know, it, it can escalate and it can go down. And it's about managing them and getting stronger and supporting the knee joint, particularly uh, because it's a significant weight bearing joint. The population is getting bigger. Comorbidities will get bigger and people will work longer. So we need to be able to support them to uh, stay in work and increase their quality of life. So, you know, FCPs in practice can talk about um, fit notes when they've done the training they can talk about what they can do to manage at work and keep them in work and you know trying to reduce the episodes of knee pain trying to uh, look at weight management we know for a fact it's a significant weight bearing joint we know with every step that four times your body weight goes on mm-hmm. and uh, you know going up upstairs 10 times your weight body weight goes on your knees so people always say well I can't exercise as much because of my knee pain which I completely understand but we also know that exercise itself doesn't make you lose weight necessarily it makes you fitter yeah okay what makes you lose weight is a balance of your your dietary intake for your dietary use doesn't it so important to stress that actually if you're not as active then you don't need the same number of calories and always think the glasses are always half full because your demand on your knees is so high in normal walking, then, you know, if you lose two pounds, effectively you've lost eight pounds off every step. Mm. You know I mean? It's a nice way of looking at it. Yeah, yeah. so I, I, absolutely. And then immediately the patients are on board because they can see a positivity. The amount of times they hear, oh, I've only lost half a stone, they've really tried. And I just say, well, that's eight pounds. That's yeah. 80 pounds every time you climb your stairs. That's 32 pounds every time you take a step. Yeah. And we invariably know, and as I'm sure Judith will agree, that loads of patients, you know, we don't treat the x-ray, you treat the patient. You could have, they could be absolutely horrendous on x-ray, but their pain is significantly reduced because they've lost a stone in weight and they're, they're going back to do the activities they want to do. So I think it's about that and buying them time and because we know that they've got longevity, haven't they? They're going to lift till they're 90, probably. So yeah. I would say that from a um, quick nugget. No, that's great, John. It's remembering the the patient in the disease. I think it's really important. Yeah, it's amazing. Thank you, Judith. 
Yeah, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about back pain. I mean, back pain obviously is one of the massive things that turns up to primary care and you'll see, you know, your revolving door patient on a regular basis with back pain. So one of the things that um, I was really involved with a few years was implementing the National Low Back Pain Pathway, um, which was introduced in 2017. And this is making sure that at the point of entry into primary care, the patient is risk stratified. And there's a tool that's integrated into a lot of the online systems called the Start Back Tool, which can help score your patient into low, medium and high risk for back pain. And certainly as a first contact practitioner, it's important to do red flag screening, make sure the patient isn't presenting with serious pathology, because even though they might be low risk, they may not be, they might be oblivious to the fact they've got something really quite serious going on. And similarly, those patients with high risk are not necessarily presenting with anything serious. So it's about making sure that you understand the condition and you risk stratify them and then as a first contact practitioner you should be able to manage all those patients at a low risk without any red flags in primary care using a very simple um, seven golden rules advice which is obviously something that came out of the north of England back pain pathway um, and then accordingly you can advise patients on simple management strategies for themselves or if they do need interventional treatments, you can signpost them for physiotherapy. Or if they're presenting with something of concern, obviously into the secondary care interface services for investigation and management. I think the important thing is that back pain is necessarily serious pathology. 80% of the population will have it at some point in time and some people will have ongoing problems. And it's recognising that and offering assurances to patients that it is safe to do things and that back pain should not be disabling. Right, and that start back tool is really um, helpful at giving you an actual measure of risk. I think sometimes it just feels like it's a bit um, intangible or something um, whenever you assess back pain, but that's a really nice way of being able to, like I say, stratify that risk to, to help you as well as help the patient. Yeah, those are really useful sort of orientating points that kind of really get to the crux of both of the kind of areas. So thank you so much. That's perfect. I know our, our, the audience will appreciate it as well, I'm sure. <laughs> Lovely. Um, any uh, takeaway points from our chat today? Absolutely. Make sure that uh, any first contact practitioners that you employ are at a, le a level that they should be at and make sure that there is supervision for them and um, need to be integrated into the team. They need to be part of that team and be embedded in practice in order to get a two-way teaching environment for your first contact practitioners. I'd re reiterate that last part. It's really important that that first contact practitioner isn't somebody that you see as somebody coming, visiting, doing a clinic and disappearing, but they are part of your team. They attend your meetings, they offer you training and they go to your training and they are completely part of your primary care network. Yeah, because you can learn so much from each other, definitely. Yeah. And that's been quite a theme, actually, because we've, we've spoken to a couple of um, these additional roles now. And um, that's definitely been a theme that they should be part of your team and they should be coming to meetings. They should know where the coffee room is. They should be treated as any other member. Um, and I think that is really, really important. Massively. Yeah. Oh, thanks so much to both of you for putting up with the IT issues and for talking to us today. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. So that was a really amazing chat with uh, Joanne and Judith. What did you take away from it, Lisa? I think, again, it's just absolutely loving hearing about all of these different careers and roles and what everybody can do. Um, I was just really inspired by um, all the work that Judith and Joanne have done throughout their careers and all the different bits that they've been involved in and just kind of how senior their roles are right now. I think they're really inspirational for younger members of the team. 
Yeah, and the the whole way that Judith was talking about the changes in in the structure of physiotherapy in primary care and being part of those changes and sort of yeah improving improving the service provision and yeah, yeah that, that being very patient centered and I think yeah it was it was really inspirational it's fabulous to hear it from a be- behind the scenes um and I loved their learning points as well I loved both of them talking us through um the different areas I feel like we could have lots of episodes with them again where they could teach us so much um so that the whole approach to knee pain pain being holistic and giving patients independence so that it's it's so much more empowering for them it's not just one routine and that you have to think of it as x-ray um injection yes replacement you need an orthopedic person you you know actually there's so much that you can do to to change the pain and to live a good life and not everything ends in surgery or injections so no yeah. exactly and the bit just the bits like that was mind-blowing for me about the weight mm. um the the <laughs> fact that just by losing that tiny bit of weight it's so much less pressure yeah. on your knees um and I, like yeah that's a really good way of communicating that i think to patients because it actually puts it into real life terms for how it's going to help their knee yeah. if they lose weight so yeah that, i thought that was really useful yeah that was amazing yeah um oh i really liked hearing about first contact physiotherapists and kind of understanding that having more experience before you get into that being really useful um, and knowing red flags so just kind of from our perspective of not having worked with the physiotherapist in primary care how much you know are, are they comfortable with screening out red flags for back pain um, and that, I feel like that's that kind of feeling of you know are you going to miss something if somebody goes straight to physiotherapy um, yeah. and actually that was that was great to sort of hear how it works. Yeah no I completely agree. Um, so yeah if you want to get in touch with us there's a couple of different ways that you can do so um, you can send us an email and our email address is primarycarepodcasts at gmail.com or you can um, find us on Twitter and our handle is at pckbpodcast yeah and we have a survey monkey link in our episode description which you can click on and, and send us some feedback um, um, that is always a fabulous way and if you're enjoying them also share in any ways that yes. you feel appropriate <laughs> or give us some reviews that's that would be lovely till next time i'm primary care knowledge boost Hey guys, just a friendly reminder that these podcasts are for healthcare professional education and shouldn't be used for medical advice by the general public. This was recorded in Greater Manchester in 2021. Guidelines can vary by location as well as over time, so always check for up-to-date local and national guidelines before making treatment decisions. Uh, The content is based on our interviewee's opinion and interpretation of current best practice. It's your responsibility to use your clinical judgment before applying or relying on information solely from this podcast check out the episode description for full details and any links that we've mentioned in the episode.